welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker of The Week, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week is Eric Edelman, former top diplomat and Pentagon official, and the host of a new podcast that is the joint venture of The Bulwark and the University of Virginia's Miller Center. It is called Shield of the Republic, and the joint hosts are Eric Edelman and Elliot Cohn. So we're going to start this week with the political lay of the land. There have been a large number of polling results recently that show that President Biden is really losing altitude, most particularly among independents and Hispanics. A survey even by the Senate Democrats, a PAC, has found really worrying evidence of his, his unpopularity. And of course, this comes in the midst of the continuing dysfunction. So I, I want to start with Damon Linker about the Virginia governor's race in particular, because it gives us, I think, a kind of a, a symbol of what is happening nationally, because you have Terry McAuliffe attempting to paint Glenn Youngkin as Trump, Trump, Trump. And meanwhile, Trump is not on the ballot, has not interfered too much in the Virginia race. And it looks like the Republicans are poised to make a real comeback in a state that Biden won by 10 points. Yeah, I, I wrote this week about the kind of perplexity that I have about exactly what the, the rationale is, is going on among Democrats. That on the one hand, you've heard since the time that Trump was the, the nominee in 2016, all the way through his narrow victory through the Trump administration and on through the transition to Biden, this line that our democracy is threatened by this man, he's dangerous to the extent that the Republican Party has, in, has wrapped it, uh, Trump around itself and has merged with him and his personality and his kind of personality cult, the Republican Party is also dangerous and a threat to the Republic. And at the same time, you have the Democrats governing sort of as if it's perfectly normal and they have political power and they're going to smash through a kind of very progressive agenda while they have power because the, the, the Republicans, per usual, totally normal, are expected to probably pick up some seats and take over Congress in the midterms next year. And these two things are in considerable tension with each other, and you see it playing out, where McAuliffe hopes to win by effectively saying, if you vote for Youngkin, you're voting for Trump, and that's dangerous, it's a threat to the country. And maybe it'll work, but the problem is that when the Democrats actually, first they deploy that as a kind of get-out-the-vote operation, hoping to gin up people showing up to vote on Election Day and voting for them, but then they hold power, and we see it unfolding before our own eyes, that they 
they don't say lead with a kind of moderate, maximally appealing agenda for independence and crossover voters and to try to pass maybe an infrastructure bill with other things that could be broadly appealing to people across the spectrum, as you might expect, if the real threat is allowing Republicans to win, combined with reforms to try to uh, inoculate the electoral system against more Trumpian shenanigans. Instead, you see this much more progressive and aggressively left-wing agenda being pushed. And, you know, will this work? I mean, I think you, you sort of have to hope that people will show up to vote in the next couple of weeks in Virginia and say, in effect, well, you know, Trump's still a threat, so I got to vote for the Democrats. But again, unfolding before our eyes is the reality that if you elect Democrats, what they're going to do with power is govern leaning to the left. And this is a contradiction. To sum it up, the Democrats appear to be running for office as if Trump is a major threat, but they're governing as if he isn't, as if everything is perfectly normal. And eventually, I think this is going to fail as a combination strategy, a kind of two-step. I think they have to choose one or the other, and I think listeners uh, are pretty clear where I stand on that and probably mm -hmm. most of the people in this podcast about which would be the the better of the two alternatives. I think if Trump is a threat, he's a threat and we ought to we ought to act as if he is at all times. So I would underline something that you said but but I would emphasize it more which is that it isn't just Trump. It's that the Republican Party in its new iteration is a threat itself. This is the party that does not want to even investigate what happened on January 6th, right? It's a party that is all in on, on denying the reality of what happened in 2020. It's a party that 78% of Republicans say they want Trump to run again despite January 6th and everything else. So it's the party. It isn't just Trump. And, and Eric, I, I'm coming to you now because what Damon is saying is – something that others have also made this point, which is that the Democrats have constantly said that Trump represents a threat and that this is an emergency for our democracy, and they are just not acting like it. I know I'm a broken record on this, but, but, but some things are worth being a broken record about. They have done nothing to reform the Electoral Count Act which is an open invitation to Republicans to deny certification of the 2024 presidential contest. Whereas they are arguing about whether you can give water to somebody waiting in line or, or mail-in ballots and that sort of thing. And that's just not the emergency, in my humble opinion. What say you? Well, Mona, I, like you, I'm a kind of single-issue voter right now, which is on mm -hmm. def defending democracy. I've been puzzled, at, you know, as a foreign policy type, I've been puzzled a little bit by Biden's numbers in the sense that when he ran, you know, he's appeared to be very likable. It was hard for the Republicans to make him, you know, a hateful figure. And so I think they had some trouble with that. But his numbers have tumbled enormously. And I've put on my foreign service officer hat thinking about how would I report this to my home government if I were detailed as a diplomat here. And to me, what this is about is a departure from what he ran on, which is competence and a safe pair of hands. 
And mm -hmm. I think what's happened over the last several months for a combination of reasons is that he no longer seems that way, which is to say the competence, I think, was shattered by the shambolic withdrawal from Afghanistan. And I'll come back in a second to some evidence for that. And the rise of the Delta variant after he had declared that, you know, we were going to have July 4th as Liberation Day from the pandemic clearly has played a, a role. But moreover, the, the infighting with inside the Democratic Party over this $3.5 trillion package, and I don't follow the ins and outs of it nearly as closely as the rest of you do, but I, I think uh, most Americans are just turned off by the inside baseball politics of it. But it seems like a giant overreach for somebody who ran as a safe pair of hands, not Trump. And so I think that has really taken an enormous toll. By the way, this is also Terry McAuliffe's rationale for running for governor. You know, I was a good moderate governor. I'll be a safe governor if you put it in my hands again. But he's being dragged down clearly by the perception of, of incompetence and overreach on Biden's part. On the competence in Afghanistan piece, let me just provide some polling evidence, I think, that sustains my view. First, it was pretty clear that Biden and his team thought that however much at the time public opinion was unhappy with the way the Afghanistan withdrawal went, that the overwhelming public support for getting out of Afghanistan and weariness with this long, inconclusive, very unsatisfying war would tide them over in the long run and that people would ultimately forget about what had happened in August by, say, November. The Quinnipiac poll that came out last week, I think, is living testament to the late political scientist V.O. Key's notion that he believed in the sober second thought of the American people. That poll showed 50% now believe we should have left at least some troops in Afghanistan rather than departing completely. 15% think we should have left all of them. And only 28% believe that Biden picked the right course. And so I think they made a major miscalculation that they could spin their way out of the disaster uh, this August. And I think that's now mixed with all these other things that I mentioned and taken a tremendous toll on Biden's popularity and approval rating. It's interesting because his approval ratings had begun to slide before Afghanistan, but post-Afghanistan, they really took a deep dive. And I mean, there's been a little bit of bounce back, but but not that much. Bill Galston, I, I want to come to you with this question about Virginia, because Virginia is always an off-year election. And in I think for decades, Virginia has always been counter-cyclical. It has elected a governor from the party opposite to that held by the president. And a recent exception was 2013. So I want to present to you a fact about 2013. By the way, that was Terry McAuliffe. So I want to present to you a fact about 2013 for your consideration. At the time, Ted Cruz was leading a government shutdown, and the Republicans were perceived, and Virginia is very alert to what happens in Washington right across the river, Republicans were perceived as being dysfunctional and irresponsible and tearing things down and so forth, not governing. And now, with Terry McAuliffe's attempt at a comeback, you have the Democrats in charge, and they are giving a, a public impression of disarray and failure to govern. Do you think that plays a role? Well, of course it does. And you stole most of my thunder. Oh. But let me, <laughs> Sorry. But let, me, 
let me just rattle the heavens as feebly as I can, given the material left. What you said at the outset is completely true. Uh, in fact, 10 out of the past 11 Virginia gubernatorial contests have had counter-cyclical outcomes. The party opposite to the party controlling the White House won the governorship. As you say, the one exception to that was Terry McAuliffe in 2013, but it's noteworthy that McAuliffe only got 47% of the vote. Mm -hmm. He beat Ken Cuccinelli by a couple of points, but there was a libertarian candidate who ran much better than third-party candidates usually do in Virginia. And a plausible conjecture is that a lot of people who voted for the Libertarian would never have voted for Terry McAuliffe, but couldn't bring themselves to vote for Ken Cuccinelli, who was sort of an early version of Trump, or for the Republican Party, given what was going on in Washington. So, but for that, Virginia would have a perfect counter-cyclical record going back almost a quarter of a century. And I think it is entirely likely that history could repeat itself here. Uh, the latest poll from a very good polling organization, uh, Monmouth, had the two candidates in a dead heat, 46-46, which represented a change from every previous Monmouth poll. Yes, it's within the margin of error, but I still think that the direction of the shift is quite telling. And if momentum doesn't change over the next couple of weeks, uh, then I think it is a better than 50-50 chance that Mr. Youngkin will walk away with a narrow victory. At that point, the history that I just recited will be set aside by panicked Democrats. It will be interpreted as a harbinger of bad news in the midterm elections. I think the Democrats will get bad news in the midterm elections, but Virginia is an imperfect leading indicator of that. And I guess I would caution, given this historical backdrop, against over-interpreting the reasons for a narrow public repudiation of Terry McAuliffe in Virginia. It's easy to say X happened and then Y happened and then Y happened because of X. Uh, that's known as the post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy among rhetoricians. And I think I detect a lot of it among political analysts as well. I think we should be careful in attributing a quite possible Democratic loss in the Virginia gubernatorial race to our favorite theory about what the Democratic Party is doing wrong in Washington. So here's the thing, Linda. Well, a couple things. One is so Bill said that if McAuliffe loses, the Democrats will then be drawing lessons, and he's concerned that they not perhaps draw the wrong ones. My question to you is, will they draw the right lessons? You know, people tend to, to hear what they want to hear, and they could easily say, yeah, that's, see, that's what happens when you nominate these moderates. I mean, you know, don't forget that when Terry McAuliffe got the nomination, there was a lot of talk about, you see, the Democrats are going for these centrists and uh, establishment figures, and that's the way to go. And the progressives could say, you see, you went for the moderate, and now you've lost. Well, I, I'm really glad that I have finally found something in which I can beg to differ with my friend Bill on, uh, because I think this is not a question of drawing the wrong conclusions uh, based on a single election. 
I think there is right now something going on broadly in American political life. I'm not alone, but there are many like me who feel a bit of buyer's remorse and feel that the candidate, Joe Biden, has engaged in a little bait and switch with the governing president, Joe Biden. Many of us embraced him because we did see him as the voice of moderation in the Democratic Party, but I don't think he is governed in that way, at least not on some basic things that get at the heart of what you're talking about, Mona, and that is the culture. I absolutely agree that there is a threat to democracy going on right now posed by the Republican Party and most specifically by Donald Trump to democratic processes. And if they were to prevail in what they're trying to do in allowing state legislatures, for example, to nullify elections, it would be the end of democracy as we know it. But I also believe that the radical progressive movement poses a threat to democracy as well. And that we have seen in Virginia and elsewhere the question of critical race theory, the question of what is taught in the schools, is very much on the minds of voters. And that voters are not happy with the rewriting um, of U.S. history that we see. They're not happy at the kind of things we're seeing, for example, in New York, at City Hall, even this, the so-called moderate candidate for mayor, Eric Adams, is now calling for the removal of Thomas Jefferson's statue from City Hall. They're not happy with the way in which the woke mob uh, basically controls who gets to speak in public and what they get to say. And we don't see pushback from the Biden administration. In fact, we see the Biden administration embracing much of that agenda, constantly referring to systemic racism. Systemic racism is a controversial theory. It is not something that is, in fact, I think, accepted by most Americans. The whole critical race theory debate about what's taught in our schools and how it's taught is something that major portions of the American public, I would suggest probably a majority, push back against. And yet we see the administration basically giving comfort and cover to the most radical elements on the woke left on some of these issues. So it isn't just Virginia that we should overread Virginia. I do think that what's going on in Virginia is going on elsewhere in the country and that President Biden's declining approval is in large part uh, stemming from people who don't like what they see and don't like the way he's been governing. We need to move on to our next topic, but let me just say, Linda, really quick in response to your point that, I, I mean, I do agree that this is a, a real concern to many Americans, not just to knuckle-dragging racists and others who misuse these kinds of issues. There's plenty of that too, but no, people with, of good faith are worried about it. And Terry McAuliffe, when he was asked about it during this race, was incredibly tone deaf. When he was asked about CRT and other things, he would just say, oh, well, that's just a dog whistle from the Trump people. And then he would immediately pivot to talking about how much more he planned to spend on schools as if that were responsive, which it isn't. All right. Let us now turn to foreign policy. 
I'm going to start with you, Eric Edelman. This week, we were told that China has tested a new hypersonic missile, which I gather goes more slowly than a, than a, an intercontinental ballistic missile, but can evade anti-missile systems. So give us your sense of, first of all, if you want to talk about whether this missile is something we should worry about, please do. And, and then give us your larger sense, though, of how we should be thinking about China now vis-a-vis Taiwan, vis-a-vis leadership of the world. Just a small little question for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've now ventured into something that is rocket science. So um, <laughs> I think first... Everyone ought to take a deep breath. As you pointed out, uh, you know, hypersonic missiles are missiles that fly five times, Mach 5, five times the speed of sound. An intercontinental ballistic missile actually flies much faster than that. The difference is that the so-called hypersonic missiles don't fly on a ballistic trajectory, and they have a boost glide vehicle on the end that can maneuver and therefore can fly low, evading early warning radars, and presumably defeat uh, missile defense systems. But our missile defense system was never really intended to deal with uh, a large nuclear arsenal like Russia's or China's. It was meant to deal with small nuclear arsenal from North Korea or perhaps, if they move in that direction, Iran. I think we need a little more clarity on exactly what this missile was. Frank Kendall, the Secretary of the Air Force, among others, has said it is something like the fractional orbital system that the Soviets tested and thought about deploying in the 1970s. That is a vehicle that circumnavigates the globe and then can fire from space and and defeat missile defenses, etc. I think it's worrisome that we apparently didn't see this coming, and that is a reflection of our persistent tendency to underestimate China's ability to develop capabilities. I know The commander of STRATCOM said yesterday that this is, you know, an example of the breathtaking expansion of China's nuclear and strategic capabilities, which have been undergoing a very rapid, both quantitative and qualitative modernization. I think the central strategic deterrent issue between us and China, this doesn't change one whit, but I do think what this is a an indicator of is both Russia and China's persistent efforts to try and stress what we call our extended deterrence, that is the ability of the United States to extend its nuclear umbrella to our allies and and partners, including notably not just treaty allies, but partners like Taiwan and Israel. And I think therein really lies the significance of this. We are facing a much more complex set of nuclear threats than we did during the Cold War because we've got two near peers now, Russia and China, and there's indication that China's trying to build up to be numerically at least closer to Russia and to us than it has been historically, which has been a very small nuclear deterrent that they've maintained historically. We've also seen in the last week North Koreans testing a submarine-launched ballistic missile, and they're moving in the direction of a triad of air-breathing, submarine-launched, intercontinental ballistic missiles. So to me, what this suggests is this is not a time for unilateral cuts in the U.S. nuclear force. We're in the middle of a nuclear posture review at the Department of Defense right now. In the past, Biden has called for uh, potentially cutting our, our nuclear force. I don't think it's time for fooling around with U.S. declaratory policies either, like no first use or making some kind of declaration that the only purpose of 
nuclear weapons is to deter other nuclear weapons as opposed to some kinds of conventional or other kinds of aggression. And this also highlights, I think, the importance of space and the fact that the Chinese are going to space. So can I follow up a little bit just real quick Please. with you, Eric, on that? So one of our policies that is specifically aimed to be ambiguous is the so-called strategic ambiguity regarding what we would do in the event of an attack by China on Taiwan. Some people have suggested that it's time to end the ambiguity and that we should be specific about our security guarantee to Taiwan. What's your view on that? You know, I think we've got to be very careful. My former colleague, Nick Burns, uh, who is uh, the Biden administration's nominee to be ambassador to the People's Republic of China, was testifying yesterday and pushed back uh, against Senator Haggerty, uh, who was asking him about precisely this question, Mona. And actually, Bill has written in the Wall Street Journal about this very, I think, astutely, there are two sides to this. I mean, on, on the one hand, we have the situation of ambiguity. We used to have a treaty with an Article 5 guarantee like the one in NATO or the Japan-U.S. Mutual Security Treaty. That was abrogated when we normalized relations with the People's Republic in 1979. I think if you don't have a treaty, you know, no matter what people in Congress say, there's always going to be some level of ambiguity, and it could be worse if we try and make some statements. I think the most important thing is to lean forward with Taiwan to help them defend themselves as we're obligated to under the domestic law, the Taiwan Relations Act, and make them a very unappealing target for the PRC to think about seizing uh, militarily. It also means we've got to, as Bill pointed out, deal with some near and midterm challenges to our deterrent posture. There's been a lot of focus, and this will be a big issue in the new national defense strategy forthcoming from the administration, on long-term competition with China and developing capabilities like hypersonics to, to contest what the Chinese are doing. But we have a short and medium-term problem in that we already face difficulty in wargaming, as Bill points out in his excellent column, defeating China today. And we don't want to prop the Chinese to by you know, making some kind of chest-pounding declaration, I think that they need to try and do something now before we get stronger and can stop them. So I, I think we've got to be a little careful about it. Thanks. So, Bill, I'm going to turn to you on this. You, you have written a lot of really great stuff about China in the last uh, few weeks, and so I'd like to play devil's advocate with you for a second. You, you're very concerned about the rise of China. And so here's the alternative point of view. Look, China is not the USSR in so many ways. First of all, it does not have global ambitions to dominate the world with its ideology. It's simply a mercantilist power that wants to increase its sway in its region specifically and then as a big power uh, economically. And that we don't have to fear China some people say because it's such a huge trading partner and it really can't afford to destroy its biggest markets. So how do you respond to that argument? Well, Mona, the intertwined markets argument was exactly the argument that was extremely popular in the years between 1910 and 1913 as an explanation as to why the great nations of Europe would never go to war. As a matter of fact, somebody who wrote a book to that effect uh, won the Nobel Prize for it. And 
I am not sure that I agree with your devil's advocate assessment now, although arguably 20 years ago, the preponderance of the evidence spoke in its favor. If you pay attention to what she has been saying, especially in recent years, including a three and a half hour address to the 19th Party Congress, it becomes clear that the Chinese do genuinely believe uh, that this is a struggle between two systems. They believe deeply that their system is better and even more to the point is fated to prevail, that they are getting stronger, we are getting weaker. They have created a system of what I call Trojan ports around the world, only some of which have demonstrable economic purposes. I do not think that they are simply a mercantilist power with regional military and diplomatic ambitions. I believe at the very least, they would like to undermine and reverse the system of alliances and friendships that the United States had in the entire Indo-Pacific region. So granted, the People's Republic of China is not just the same as the USSR, but I think that you know, thinking of them as a nation with limited ambitions is yesterday's story. And today's story is that their ambitions have grown as their power has grown. And even if you just believe that Xi Jinping would like to go down in history as the great reunifier of China, that is still more than enough to produce an armed conflict between China and the United States, unless we are simply prepared to abandon Taiwan, as I think some China experts are in their heart of hearts, even if they won't admit it. Linda, one thing that the Chinese economic power has been able to achieve that the USSR was not able to, except with a few very uh, super left-wing fellow travelers in the United States, is they have been able to use their economic clout to intimidate or browbeat American celebrities, American sports teams, American corporations into self-censorship, sometimes in the most humiliating fashion. And as Bill wrote this week, we're seeing another thing that we kind of unwelcome in that the Europeans don't seem to be all in on lining up with us to stare down China on some of these matters. Exactly. And, you know, I think China is the single greatest threat to world stability and to the United States and to our system and our way of life. I think it has been growing to that position for quite a while, and it has benefited from the kind of benign neglect that various administration heaped on it. Donald Trump didn't saber rattle uh, with China. He did impose tariffs, which, as we've talked about many times on this program, um, ended up, I think, hurting American consumers more than they did China. And it is very worrisome. America is a country right now that appears to be in decline from a variety of factors. We are even losing the edge on something we used to have the superiority on, and, and that is growth. Uh, we were one of the few industrial nations that was growing at a fairly rapid pace. 
uh, largely because of immigration and the fact that the immigrants who come to the United States tended to have more children than the native born. Uh, that's not happening anymore. We're, we're not yet absolutely losing population, but we're certainly not growing. And if the trends continue as they have been for the last uh, several years, uh, we will reach the point, I think, where we'll begin uh, to lose population. We're declining in all sorts of other ways. I mean, we just spent the last half hour talking about the threats to democracy that are coming from within the United States. You know, forget about uh, our foreign adversaries. Uh, we've got threats uh, to our future that are coming from within. Uh, certainly, the relationship between the United States and Europe is not at a, a great point. I think that uh, really was accelerated uh, because of the Trump administration. But Biden hasn't been able to do anything uh, to reverse it. And in fact, his withdrawal from Afghanistan exacerbated uh, the situation and, and left many of our allies saying, you know, will the United States actually be there for us if we need them? So look, we're in a terrible position right now. Um, the end of the 21st century and certainly going into the 22nd century, if things do not reverse and reverse rather quickly, I think we are going to see the end of the American century, and we're going to see China become the dominant force in the world. Whether we can even halt that uh, at this point requires, first of all, on recognizing it as a problem, but secondly, on doing things that it's not clear to me that the American people will even get behind, um, including you know, more spending on uh, defense systems and more willingness, uh, in fact, to stand up to our treaty commitments and our promises uh, for mutual defense. It's not clear to me that the American public would support us trying to save Taiwan should uh, China decide to move on it, for example. It, it's scary. So, Damon, you are somebody who wants a more modest foreign policy and um, world role, I, I, I suspect, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the things that you hear and that I've heard, frankly, since I was a kid from people on the left was that, you know, the United States had this imperial military that was all about imposing American will around the world and that we'd be far better off. You know, I remember when I was in college, you know, people wore T-shirts saying, wouldn't it be great if the schools had all the money they needed and the Pentagon had to hold a bake sale to buy a bomber? Um, that was the that was the popular view. It's always been out there on the left, this view that uh, we way overspend on the military and that our military does bad things around the world. Now, admittedly, the war in Iraq didn't help with that image. But, I mean, we also do things with our military like help little countries and that are the victims of aggression from South Korea to Kosovo to uh, to Taiwan. And so... I'm curious to hear what you think, how you want to thread things to, do you want to maintain that, that American strength so that we can continue to be a force that defends small friends and, and liberty around the world? Or do you, do you think that we're just not good at that? What's, what's your view? 
Well, um, I am a realist, as foreign policy people describe themselves sometimes, as opposed to a liberal internationalist or some call neoconservative, which is basically just a more hawkish liberal internationalist. But for the purposes of this discussion, I mean, yeah, I'm a little skeptical of the United States fighting wars and intervening militarily in order to, uh, say, defend small countries against bullies, for instance. So I, I've, we haven't talked about this yet. I think it's really foolish to talk about expanding NATO to include Ukraine and Georgia. I really, the idea that we would fight a war against Russia to defend this little country right on the border of Russia with all kinds of historic ties to Russia, I think is, is absurd. Like, we, we have to prioritize what's important. And I do believe that confronting China is incredibly important and probably the most important thing that faces the United States right now. So in that respect, I don't really disagree with much of what anybody has said uh, on this podcast about uh, our stance toward China. If my skepticism would be, uh, I, I wouldn't want to try to say we need to uh, be prepared to defend Taiwan from China because they're a democracy and we stand for liberty and noble things like that. I mean, I do think we do stand for those things, but that isn't the reason why we would defend Taiwan. We would defend Taiwan because we don't want to live in a world where China can simply invade a, a free country 100 miles off its coast and impose its will on it because a world in which that is possible is a world much degraded from the liberal international order that's prevailed since the end of World War II. And that's very bad for the United States and our, our closest friends in the world. And so, therefore, don't let it happen. Now, the question of how not to let it happen, that is a huge question. I don't have any great answers. I would simply, one thing that Eric said that I, I did want to maybe respond to just to kind of add a nuance to it, I very much agreed with his comments about how it probably doesn't make sense to make a forthright declaration that we will defend Taiwan if invaded in, in large part for the very reason he said, which is that that could very well provoke Xi into thinking, well, if we're going to do this, we better do it now before they have even more of us. The United States has even more formidable defenses there. But related to that, I very much support the Biden administration's move to uh, to start the, the so-called AUKUS deal with Great Britain, Australia, and Australia in order to uh, to sell nuclear submarines to Australia so that Australia can carry some of the burden of patrolling uh, the South China Sea with these very formidable weapons as a deterrent to China. But of course, those submarines aren't going to show up for a while, and we've <laughs> several years, and we have announced that we're sending them, which could have exactly the same effect of leading China to make a strategic calculation. Well, if it's between invading Taiwan in 2023 and 2028, uh, maybe it makes sense to do it sooner rather than later because the defense, the deterrent will be much more formidable then. So I'm not saying that uh, as a kind of as a criticism so much as just to, to point out how complex all of this is right now that we are dealing with 
I, I, what is really, I, I don't like the Cold War comparison, not because I disagree necessarily with much of how uh, Bill described the situation, uh, so much as that, it, that it makes more sense to see this as a classic great power competition. We are the great power in the world, and China is a rising hegemon, and in a situation like that throughout all of human history, including the Cold War, but but that's one subset of a very specific version of this broader issue. We are going to be on a collision course with that rising hegemon. There is no way to avoid it. And the thing that you do in a situation like that is try to be as smart about it as possible to avoid a direct military confrontation. And it might not be possible to avoid that, frankly, but let's do our best to avoid it, but not by saying we're not going to defend Taiwan, which would be like an open invitation for China to take Taiwan, but by being deterrent and how we allocate forces and training for it and be making sure that China is aware that uh, it's this is an incredibly risky proposition for them to try it. Eric Edelman, I'm come, I, I see you have your hand up. I just would note that in light of what Damon said, that uh, famously before World War I, uh, a German diplomat said that what Germany was after was its place in the sun. I just wanted to make uh, two quick points uh, about this China-Taiwan thing. First, uh, I've been quite critical of many things uh, the Biden administration has done on foreign policy, but I do think on Taiwan, they have been much more forward-leaning than I would have anticipated. They invited the Taiwan diplomatic representative in Washington to attend uh, President Biden's inauguration. They sent in April a, a, a high-level high delegation uh, uh, that was led by Chris Dodd, very close a friend of President Biden's, but also in, included uh, two former deputy secretaries of state, one Republican, one Democrat, Jim Steinberg and, and um, Rich Armitage uh, to Taipei. Uh, they've uh, announced some arms sales. So I, I, I want to give them credit uh, for actually leaning in. And I, I say that mindful of uh, Bill's comment, which I agree with, which a lot of China experts in their heart of hearts basically would be happy for this issue to be over with and, and for Taiwan to just you know go away. Um, the second thing I wanted to tie together, uh, something Damon said, something Linda said, and something Bill wrote about in you know his uh, column this week about the Europeans and Americans not being quite on the same page with regard to China, and it ties to the AUK-US nuclear uh, propulsion deal, which I very much support, like uh, Damon and um, I think Bill. I think it's actually a very far-seeing step, but it, it pained me that it was so poorly executed. Uh, and, and not because the French amour propre was violated and they threw a temper tantrum and recalled their ambassador, but because, number one, if there's going to be an engine for getting Europeans more engaged in uh, the Indo-Pacific, it will have to be France, uh, putting aside some of President Macron's annoying uh, habits of needling the United States. France is an Indo-Pacific power. Uh, it has... Uh, seven, 8,000 troops in, in the Indo-Pacific. It's got several million French overseas residents in the Indo-Pacific. It is the only uh, European power that really is likely to propel something like uh, a similar approach to China on the part of the U.S. Uh, with a certain amount of diplomacy and work. 
moreover, there was a clear win-win that could have been orchestrated here uh, with a little bit um, more diligence and forethought. The United States faces some very serious problems in the long run with its own nuclear propulsion for submarines that relies on highly enriched uranium. There's a limit to how much highly enriched uranium we will have available over the next 20, 30 years. For that reason, the submarine, the propulsion for the Australian subs is likely going to have to be based on uh, low enriched uranium. And uh, that will also be, by the way, something that nonproliferation concerns will require. And the French submarines, their nuclear submarines, are actually propelled by low enriched uranium, not high. So cutting the French into this deal could have been a win-win for everybody. And I really wish that the Biden administration had exercised that kind of forethought before launching this effort. Mm. Um, by the way, when you mentioned Macron needling the United States, I was going to say a, a French leader taking shots at the American president is kind of redundant, right? Don't they all do that? Uh, they are French after all. But uh, Bill Galston, did you want to make another point? I agree with Eric's praise of the Biden administration on Taiwan, and I would say more generally on China issues. They have a very, very impressive intellectual infrastructure, especially in the National Security Council with people like uh, Kirk Campbell and more recently uh, Rush Doshi, who just wrote a very fine book on China's long game. And if there is going to be intellectual leadership on China policy, I would expect it to come from the National Security Council and be, would be quite disappointed if it didn't. Okay. Well, very good discussion. I just want to underline what Bill just said by quoting from Nicholas Burns, who Eric also mentioned, a former colleague of his, who in a hearing before the Senate Relations uh, Foreign Relations Committee this week was very uh, unsparing in his description of China. He called he accused it of genocide against the Muslim minority Uyghurs. And he mentioned the abuse of Tibet and the smothering of Hong Kong's autonomy as well as the bullying of Taiwan. And that is the kind of language that you would never, you never did hear uh, from the Trump administration. They were so focused on trade as if the great crimes that China was committing involved selling, any, selling us too many washing machines. Whereas uh, the, these other things I think are a little more important. Obviously, it's also important that we insist that China engage in Fair and free trade, but uh, but anyway, that I think is a is a good corrective um, in emphasis. Okay, um, we have gone somewhat long, which is fine. We always have a lot to say on these subjects, and I probably overscheduled us. So, and I don't want to give short shrift to the topic that we were supposed to come to next, which is about cancel culture and the canceling of the Dorian Abbott lecture by MIT, which I think is uh, emblematic of what's happening uh, in too many areas of American life with this uh, excessive um, sensitivity and uh, culture of, uh, uh, of canceling people. So I will hold that over until next week. And for now, we will go to our final segment, which is the highlight or low light of the week. And we will start with Linda Chavez. 
Well, I think there was a, a big low light this week. It's not so much an article as an event, although there is a good article that covers it in National Review by Casey Johnson called The Return of Catherine Lehman is Another Biden Betrayal. Catherine Lehman, uh, for those who don't uh, recognize the name, was uh, during the Obama administration, the head of the Office for Civil Rights in the Department of Education. Uh, she was responsible for sending out a Dear Colleague letter uh, to universities, uh, which uh, radically transformed, uh, I believe, the way that universities dealt with allegations of sexual harassment and uh, sexual assault and had the effect of denying any kind of due process uh, to students accused of those infractions or crimes. And uh, during the Trump years, uh, we had uh, Betsy DeVos, who issued regulations under Title IX, which dealt with how uh, allegations of assault and harassment should be dealt with by schools. While there were some who criticized them, even the Washington Post, I think, uh, came to see some of the uh, changes that gave more due process to accused students as beneficial. Well, Catherine Lehman is now back in the job. President Biden had already uh, said that he was going to undo the regulations under Title IX, and the vote was taken this week in the U.S. Senate. Uh, it was a tie vote, and Vice President uh, Kamala Harris uh, issued the tie-breaking vote that puts uh, Lehman back in place. And I think this is uh, not a good day for American higher education. It's not a good day for due process in America. Agreed. Yeah, that was that was one of the uh, that was one of the huge mistakes I think of the Obama administration. And uh, very very sorry to see that kind of thinking come back. All right, Eric Edelman. Well, I've got actually one highlight, which is the announcement yesterday by the Biden administration plans to vaccinate five to 11 year olds, which I think is extremely important to help us get the pandemic behind us. And since I've got some small people in my family who, you know, fall into that category, I'm glad to see it. I've actually got two lowlights of, of the week for you. Um, <laughs> okay. One is um, the unbelievable statement by President Trump, former President Trump, on the passing of uh, Colin Powell. Um, I'm someone who oh, had lots of policy differences with Secretary Powell over the years. I, I worked with him both uh, in the Bush uh, 41 administration, the beginning of Clinton, and then again in 43. But the statement by President Trump, just in case you needed any more evidence of what a terrible person he is, uh, it was there for all to see. The other is, as a former US ambassador to Turkey, I pay particular attention to, to Turkey. And the U.S. ambassador, along with nine other uh, ambassadors, uh, issued a statement about the jailing of Osman Kavala, a human rights activist in, in Turkey. Uh, they were all summoned to the foreign ministry, and President Erdogan has, has said uh, that he uh, thinks they should all be expelled. Whether they will or not is, is another question. But it's just a, another sad uh, moment uh, connoting Turkey's slide into authoritarianism. Uh, I expect the next National Conservatism Summit to be held in Turkey, Eric. <laughs> yeah, after uh, Budapest. Yeah. All right. Bill Galston. It's actually going to be in Orlando <laughs> yeah, next week. Mickey Mouse, <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, one of the things that I've been monitoring for a long time 
is the decline of local and regional newspapers, which I think is real a really big deal uh, for the future of American politics and helps explain why all politics has now turned Tip O'Neill's dictum on its head and has become mm -hmm. national. The cover story in this month's Atlantic Magazine by McKay Coppins is entitled, Who Killed America's Newspapers? And it points to the outsized role of vulture capitalists in, in undermining regional newspapers, local newspapers, the role of Alden Capital in weakening a once great newspaper of the Baltimore Sun, which may be heading for the trash heap within the next year or two. Uh, and it is a sad and scandalous, but alas, not surprising account of this seemingly inexorable process, uh, which can be interrupted only by people with very deep pockets and a more than average amount of public spirit. There are a few billionaires like that, and we need more of them to show up and save local and regional journalism from the tender mercies of the vultures. Uh, yes, great idea. So for all of our billionaire listeners, please pay attention. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the Baltimore Sun yeah. almost had one, Stuart uh, Bainham. Uh, and I'm not quite sure what happened to his effort, but uh, I wish it yeah. had gone through. All right, Damon Linker. So my uh, highlight of the week is a, a really excellent long-form uh, essay, a feature story in the New York Times Magazine titled How the American Right Fell in Love with Hungary. The author is uh, Elizabeth Zorowski, an American journalist uh, currently living in Berlin, Germany. Um, and it's just a really fine essay that does a very nice and extremely fair-minded job of sort of giving the lay of the land on what's happening in what you might call the sort of Trumpist right. And I especially appreciated it. I mean, I, I will say that the article, I believe, originated uh, with a different framing. I She interviewed me and we talked for a long time. I'm quoted a couple of times in there saying stuff that doesn't really add very much. But when I spoke to her, uh, the piece was not about Hungary. I think this is a case where uh, once Tucker Carlson ventured uh, over to Budapest uh, over the summer, they changed the framing of it and sort of imposed it on it. So it's not, it's about much more than the love affair with Hungary uh, on the right. It's about the, this whole group of intellectuals who five to 10 years ago would have been standard issue Republicans who have all sort of uh, shifted gears uh, with the rise of Trump. And not all of them are fire-breathing, pro-Trump, nasty folks. They're, they're, some of them are pretty smart, and they're trying to sort of develop a new version of the right that is kind of uh, makes more, much more sense than the uh, ridiculous orange man from New York. It's not saying I endorse much of anything that they have to say, but if you really want to get a fair-minded uh, take on exactly who these people are and what it is they hope to accomplish and whether it's compatible with American democracy, this is a pretty good place uh, to start. It's a good introductory uh, statement and, and a good example of, of journalism at its best. 
Okay. Well, the name Eric Adams has already been invoked once on this podcast and not in a good way, but uh, there is a brighter side to the week he has had. And that is this, um, the outgoing mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio, uh, after much hemming and hawing, came down on the side of eliminating all of the gifted and talented programs in the New York City schools on the grounds that they are discriminatory. Well, they are. They, they discriminate <laughs> on behalf of students with high talent uh, to give them uh, the education that they need. Similarly, we give handicapped students uh, the education that's appropriate for them. In any event, this was a very sorry moment. And Eric Adams, who is the Democratic nominee for mayor in New York, announced that if he were elected, he would reverse that decision. So bravo to him for that, notwithstanding the uh, Thomas Jefferson thing, which, by the way, I wrote a column about this week, why we are right to take down statues of Robert E. Lee and wrong to take down statues of Thomas Jefferson. That's available on The Bulwark. And speaking of The Bulwark, you can find me there at monacharon at thebulwark.com. Thank you for all of your letters, which are incredible. And I read them all and I try to respond to as many as I can. And I would like to thank Eric Edelman for joining us this week. And we will return next week as every week. <laughs> 